Wow. You guys look tired. I'm looking at some of you guys and you need a rest, you know? Particularly, uh, oh yeah, look, look at, look at Steve over there, man. He's, Donna, you keeping him up too late? Don't you hate it when people do that? They walk up to you and go, oh, you look tired. Oh, thanks. That's great. I was feeling pretty good until then, you know? Usually means I need a haircut, uh, personally. When people tell me that, it's like, yeah, that's right. I need a haircut. Hmm. We are in uh, Hebrews chapter 6 through 13, and we're talking about taking things to a whole nother level. Anybody getting tired of that? Uh, don't answer that. Um, the reason uh, we are now moving to rest, maybe, is because we do get a little tired of it. Oh, what does it mean to get more rest. Here we've spent this time talking about uh, receiving what God wants for us and then deepening these relationships. I want us to wrestle with this concept of rest. What will give you more rest? Like like a good night's sleep? How much do you need? Eight hours? Is that good? Ten? Yeah, ten's good. That's not bad. Uh, one of the guys came back from uh, Katrina Got 11 and a half or something last night. You know, poor guy hadn't been sleeping all week long, I guess. Um, is that what it takes to get rest? Just good night? A vacation? Personal day? More of this? Less of that? Less work? Less stress? Less trouble? Less problems? Less people? Less paperwork? Hmm. Tax time. Ooh, hate paperwork. Does it require more? More time to yourself? More my time than, you know, like us time? <laughs> more people I want to be with instead of people I don't want to be with? More fun? More entertainment? More refreshment? More magic than my dull routine? What is it that gives us rest? Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. The point of what we are saying is this. Isn't that an incredible phrase in the Bible? I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than that. The point we're trying to make is this. I think in these two verses, the author gives us a framework for understanding the concept of rest that actually he's brought up earlier in chapters 3 and 4. It goes something like this. We do have such a high priest, what it takes to get rest, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. That would be what we do at rest. And who serves in the sanctuary, how we respond to rest. And the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man, what it takes to stay rested. This is our month of March. A month of rest. Note these first words we read in chapter 8 point us back to what happened before. The point of what we're saying is this, and it refers back. So we're going to look back at at the problem that actually is outlined for us in chapters 3 and 4. And then the celebration of this rest that actually is ours. And this is the sole work of uh, these passages, both chapters 3 and 4 and then in 8 and 9 as well, because we can rest, because He did rest, so we will rest. 
And then the invitation that is ours as a result of this. Now, we're going to learn to stop and find rest. But first, we stop because. Because the starting point for true rest is spiritual. The rest, (laughs) excuse the pun, follows physical rest, emotional rest, occupational, relational, whatever. The starting point is spiritual rest. But the first thing we must understand is that rest doesn't start with nothing. Rest begins with something. Something very difficult, something painful, something costly. What it takes to get rest is sacrifice. Why is that? Because I believe this principle is true. We are naturally lazy, but that does not mean we are naturally at rest. Can I prove it to you? You know you need to get more sleep, but you're actually too lazy to do what's necessary to get there. Like to cut out the TV show or prepare things for tomorrow a little bit earlier or use your time better to make time for more sleep. I really should get to bed earlier. But we just are a little too lazy to make it happen. How about this? You need to spend more time, good time, with someone you really care for. But you don't work your schedule to get that time slot where it should be. You don't organize your time to make that happen. See? Just kind of don't get around to it. You know how much better you feel and how much better rested you are, how much better you feel about yourself when you get the exercise you should. Mm. But you don't say no to enough things to make that happen. You don't carefully plan when that would work best for everybody involved, so then it becomes everybody else's fault. Well, you know, I ought to, but then this happened and that happened. You see, we're naturally lazy, but that does not mean that we're naturally at rest. Well, isn't that encouraging? And aren't you glad you came to church today so that I could tell you you were lazy? Listen, Ephesians 5, 16 says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish But understand what the will of the Lord is. There's there's great promise in the solution to the problem we're going to look at this morning. And as always, the Lord leads the way. So so let's look at the problem. And and that's actually in chapters 3 and 4, where this author has brought up this concept of rest. And I'd like to read uh, verses 7 Uh, of chapter 3 through the first few verses of chapter 4. So Hebrews 3. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, when your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. And they've not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger They shall never enter my rest. 
See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first, as it has just been said. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear they shall never enter my rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, chapter 4, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. And then he continues on. We studied this passage when we were dealing with the Word of God uh, back at the beginning of our walking through Hebrews. That Word of God that's a sword, it's living and it penetrates, it's active and it judges. And the way the author drove this point home was uh, to bring up a painful memory, actually, to these people he was writing to. This story doesn't mean as much to us as it did to them, but this was a part of their heritage. In fact, it was a part of... um, Part of a psalm, Psalm 95, and we looked at that. He's quoting right out of a psalm. But why a psalm? Actually, it happened back in Exodus and in Numbers. These people were judged for their rebellion. And in verse 8, he calls it the rebellion, like like the one. And in Psalm 95, um, there are actually names placed on this rebellion, specific places. Masa, the place where you tested God. And, and Meribah, the place where you quarreled against God. They were judged for their testing of God, as Paul says, being foolish, not understanding the will of God. And this particular event was a part of these people's heritage for who they were, their rebellion. It's a part of their literature, their culture, their posterity. And they don't just remember this. It was a part of what defined them. And it's represented in Psalm 95 so that no one will ever forget. In the the midst of these glories and and, and, and goodnesses and this worshiping of God, he says to them, remember your monumental sins against me. The places were named to remind every traveler. The psalm was written to remind every worshiper. And it's summed up in those verses 16 to 18. Who were those people? Those were those real, literal people that rebelled. And so the passage repeats this concept of our hardening hearts three times and not entering the rest two times. What's the point? The point is we have a problem, and it is primarily and foremost a spiritual problem. We're naturally lazy, but that doesn't mean we're naturally at rest. We have a problem. We have our masas and our meribahs. And we grumble against God and we quarrel with Him and we test Him. And we wonder why we're not at rest. 
But what he wants to offer in all of his goodness is rest for our souls. And so we move on now into this celebration of what rest can be ours, the soul work of these passages. We can rest because he did rest and so we will. So let me show you that. We can rest. Hebrews 4. And he says it a couple times in these verses with this word that means repose, to make cease, to be finished with. There's the promise of the rest in verse 1. It still stands. And those who believed have entered that rest. We can have a solution to this this mess of our lives, this questioning heart, this quarreling spirit against our God. And there's hope because He did it. Now that's what chapters 8 and 9 are about. And if we turn over there, we, we see how He procured this rest, how He gave it to us. And uh, the bulk of... of uh, This passage, 8 and 9, is the explanation of these two covenants. This first covenant that had something wrong with it. Chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. The first covenant was the law. It was the standard to help us understand how far we fell short. But it did not solve the problem. The uh, concept that he introduces here is one of a sanctuary, an earthly one that was a tabernacle that had to be made just so because it reflected a heavenly one that actually exists. And they had to be exactly the same so that this one would represent what that one actually was. But this one didn't solve the problem. It just helped us understand where the problem was. The earthly one didn't work. The other one did And so he offers this new covenant, something completely different. And it's seen in the heavenly sanctuary. And so in chapters, chapter 9, verses 24 to 26, we read about how this one actually worked. Verse 24, Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. That was this one, the, the first one. But rather... He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter into heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he's been appear, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. The earthly couldn't remove sin. That's why it had to be repeated over and over again as a picture to remind people that it was coming. But then once he came and he entered that place, it could. And it was accomplished completely and perfectly once for all. So there was no need for repetition. So then comes the promise that we too will enter that rest. And now we're back to chapter 8, verse 1. We do have such a high priest. You see, we can enter rest, Hebrews chapter 4, because he did, explained in chapters 8 and 9, and then the beginning, we will enter that rest, the beginning of chapter 8, because we do have such a high priest. It harkens back to that uh, phrase that I spoke of when we were looking at that great shepherd. You know, he's not just a great shepherd, he's that great shepherd. What does that mean? That refers 
refers back to the fact that he'd actually accomplished something. We can actually point to something that he did and time proved it to be true. So here the same kind of thing. We do have such a high priest. He has accomplished this and such a high priest that accomplished it all perfectly. And that was a sacrifice that leads to an invitation to enter that rest. That's all over the place. We already saw it in chapter uh, 4, verses 1 and 3, where he says it still stands and those who believe can enter it. We also see it in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, uh, in, in verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? There's an invitation right there that this blood is sufficient for all of us, but I'd like to take you to another one. It's the invitation of all invitations in this context where Jesus said it himself in Matthew chapter 11, Right? Verses 28 and 29, come to me. And this is the same root of the word rest in Hebrews. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We're going to stop. And we're going to learn to rest. But first, because the first stop is spiritual. The rest will follow. The physical, the emotional, the occupational, the relational. But the first thing we must understand is that rest doesn't start with nothing. Rest starts with something. Something difficult, something painful, something costly. It started with a sacrifice. So this is our formula. The sanctuary of God. Its heavenly sacrifice is greater than any earthly offerings. We must realize our problem. We must recognize the celebration that we can because He did and so we will. We must respond to the invitation to find rest, first of all, for our souls. It does begin there, believe it or not. I can imagine saying, well, of course, you're the preacher, you know, and of course you're going to say it's spiritual first. No, it's the Bible and it really is. You want to find rest for, your, for the rest of everything, emotionally, relationally, physically, you want to find true refreshment, it begins with the deepest problem, the spiritual problem, the problem that we need in rest for our souls. So I'd like us to take this principle this morning, it's just one clear point, and apply it. And the first way we can apply that is by celebrating the sacrifice. That's what it took to get rest. It took a supreme sacrifice to enter rest. His, not ours. Oh, we'll get to ours later. But we must begin with His. Rest starts with something. It had to start with Him. We were lost in the first covenant, guilty of our sin. He sacrifices to offer rest. That's what it takes to get rest. What we're going to celebrate here. His ultimate sacrifice on the cross. 
So I'm going to ask the gentlemen as they're gathering to come. And as I, they come, uh, we'll continue to reflect on this first sacrifice. We do it regularly to remind, oopsie, excuse me, to remind ourselves that this is where it begins. All the searching after another vacation, a personal day, um, a certain kind of meditation, whatever it is, to find rest is is really futile. All those things may be necessary as a result, subsequently. But first we must recognize that rest begins with something. And it began with the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. His sacrifice is the solution to our restless souls.